This is Counterculture with Marie Busky. Wednesdays at 10 a.m. on Reality Check Radio. You're with Counterculture on Reality Check Radio. I'm Marie, and it's my great pleasure to bring to you Graham Williams, the bard from the farm, the paddock poet, and the man that knows things. Hello, Graham. How are you? Yeah, good morning, Marie. I, I don't know that I necessarily know things. I certainly have an opinion on things based on uh, the reality of my life. Uh, whether that makes me an expert or an idiot, I'm not sure. But uh, I stick to what I know and I believe what I believe in. If you're a rural listener, and I know we've got a few of them on Reality Check, you will know who Graham is. But if you're a townie, probably not so much. So for our townie listeners, Graham, tell us a, a little bit more about you. Okay, well, I'm a fourth generation East Coast farmer. Obviously, with the name of Williams, I I date back to the first uh, European settlement in New Zealand, with obviously my great 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 grandfather being William Williams. Um, and as I say, I'm fourth generation on the East Coast. I was born on Mangaroa Station, which was a property my parents bought in 1961, and I was born there six months after they went there. And I've so I've spent my entire life in that region farming and it's a fantastic part of New Zealand and I farmed there until well I actually moved off the coast and down to Gisborne in 2021 but um, I I did all my primary and intermediate education at Tomara Bay Primary School um, which was a fantastic place to grow up and my children did the same at Tolaga Bay School my three daughters um, I was one of two Europeans in my class and to be fair I didn't realise the other one being Sandra Edge. And to be fair, neither of us really recognised that we weren't mouldy until we buggered off to secondary school. So I have an understanding of rural New Zealand. I have an understanding of a lot of the issues that are before New Zealand at the moment. And, and I have an opinion on them. So that the farm I farmed was 2,000 acres of steep hill country, uh, land that um, back in the 80s, a lot of the academics said was only fit for pine trees. Uh, my father and I and our families planted over 58,000 poplar and willow trees, and it was an extremely sustainable and profitable business, uh, albeit a low-key operation uh, when I sold it, and it remains so. So I have very firm views on land use as well. So that's me in a nutshell, Marie. That, that coast lifestyle is something that really is quite special. And, of course, our families have intersected for a very long time, so that's how we know each other. I know certainly I've got family roots up there as well, and it is a special place, the coast. And it's interesting what you brought up about trees, because let's let's talk about tr some trees for, for a bit. And, pe and if people are wondering why we're we going into trees on a show about culture, hang on with me. You'll see why. Uh, Cyclone Gabriel something that is sort of certainly near to my heart being here now in Hawke's Bay. The East Coast, actually, you've had, they had two cyclonic events in this last little bit, Cyclone Hale and Cyclone Gabrielle. This, yeah. The whole issue with trees. So my father spends, has had rather heated discussions when I visit around farms going into trees. And that's been going on now for, oh, what, at least 20, 30 years up the coast? It's been a while. Yeah, well, basically, um, there was some forestry there prior to Bowler, um, but certainly Cyclone Bowler instigated um, a real turn into trees. And it coincided, of course, with very hard times in pastoral farming. And um, a lot of land that uh, possibly 
should have gone into trees, uh, did go into trees, and I don't have any issue with that. Um, but in, in recent years, particularly with the carbon thing, there's a huge amount of land that has gone into trees which shouldn't go into trees. And, and my gripe with this is that New Zealand is the most carbon efficient food producer in the world. So any available piece of land in New Zealand that is suitable for producing food could be retained in food production. I mean, it's an absolute no-brainer because uh, if we cover that particular land and trees, all it means is world demand doesn't change. It actually increases because we are um, covering up the best land in the world for doing it and less efficient people are doing it. So that is my gripe with that. But um, certainly uh, when some of the properties did go into trees back then, no one understood the implications uh, of the harvesting techniques and the um, slash issues, which have been certainly highlighted in, in recent cyclones. Um, we can't stop the rain, but we can certainly stop the slash. And it's not a, you don't have to be a rocket scientist to work out that there's a problem and a solution. And the solution is quite evident by the foresters in Canada and Europe and other parts of the world that that have the techniques and the methods to uh, virtually reduce slash. So essentially what's happened is that the government has subsidised forestry and then when basically the shit's hit the fan, they've sort of said it's nothing to do with them. Well, the reality is it's everything to do with them because the solution is totally evident to everyone and, and that's really frustrating. Do you think it's been a case of poor policy, laziness, or an uh, an inability to actually take all the benefits of the carbon farming, but not actually reinvest that money into making sure that it's fully safe and sustainable? What do you think has been the motivation behind that? I'm not anti-forestry, and in actual fact, some of the 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 best farmers I know are farm foresters. You know, and and they they have. Uh, they value both the people and the land of New Zealand. They're frustrated about this as well, aren't they? Oh, I'm sure they are because they are put. They are categorically put in the same category as these um, overseas foreign-owned companies. For your listeners that that are unaware, our 2,000-acre farm was surrounded by three properties, all over 10,000 acres. And if any property should have gone into forestry, they probably should because they were steep, hard hill country. And managed properly, they would be, you know, absolutely fine. But because of the distance from port and the economics, uh, they have been able to get away with not removing slash. Now, only two things can have occurred for that to happen. Either uh, policies were not in place uh, in the first place, policies or rules to mark them harvest sustainability so that this rubbish doesn't end up in other people's farms or destroying bridges, or the rules that were there were not enforced. My issue with the whole forestry farming thing is that there seems to be about 10 million miles of legislation for pastoral farmers and horticulturalists and everything else, whereas the forestry seem to have an open license to do what they want. And, and in layman's terms, these foreign owners, they seem to be able to come in and basically um, take the cream of the crop and leave all of the other mess for the New Zealand taxpayer to, to fix up. I mean, you name me one other industry in this country or any other part in the world where someone can essentially take the cream of the crop, basically chuck their rubbish over the boundary fence and not only bugger the, the neighbour's uh, business, but then expect the neighbour and the general public of New Zealand or the country 
to pay for it. It's it's just unbelievable. And, you know, the government says, well, it's nothing to do with them. Well, I would have said it was everything to do with them because mm. they seem to change legislation overnight if they want to. And yet this has been going on for years since, well, certainly in the last 10 years, since the, the slash on a minor level has, has become a problem. But but 2018, when we had those floods in, I mean, ex- exactly what happened then has been repeated now and virtually nothing has, has been done in the interim. So bloody piss poor, really, to yeah. be fair. Yeah. And it is, I mean, I've always said that the epitaph, particularly on this government's tombstone, was um, the law of unintended consequences because there seems to be so much that, that they have done in the name of an ideological goal that has real-world unintended consequences. So the ramping up of forestry, for example, on the coast, there are issues around roading, for example. And I know that the State Highway 35, which is the road that runs around that coastline, uh, because they have removed a priority around roading, that road is probably one of the, if not the poorest kept state highway in the network, I would have thought. Um, And it's just hammered due to the weight of logging trucks having to come down to harvest these logs out. And yet they won't take any responsibility for that either. And, you know, other farmers that are still trying to get stock and stuff out, it's it's sort of difficult. And anybody commuting up and down that road is tough. And then, of course, the safety. And then you have a weather event that knocks things out and bridges and it just the whole thing becomes an absolute, as you said, an absolute shit show. So you touched before. So, I mean, the forestry's been getting, I think that's like being the poster child of things going wrong at the moment. But there have been other things from a legislative point of view that the government have done to be that have been squeezing farmers progressively over the last five years. So what are some of those, like in terms of legislation, like is it workplace legislation, health and safety legislation? I mean, there's a whole raft of them. What are some of the ones that have been most detrimental to farmers and that have just stopped them from really farming efficiently and effectively? I think there's a whole um, spectrum of policies that are all designed to put pressure on farmers. And and I've been out of farming myself actively for five years. And and a lot of my close friends, and what I'm hearing from all these farmers is that they're, they're at the point where they want to absolutely get out of farming because of all those issues. And I can't name them specifically. But what I can say is that when Again, comparing it back to forestry, you know, how can the government uh, be hammering one industry, which I don't care what anyone says, has been the backbone of New Zealand since New Zealand basically started. Farming has been there or thereabouts, you know, at at the height of our economy. And yet uh, at a time when food production is, is one of the most poignant points of, of civilization when we should be ramping it up to as high as we can, this government seems to be doing everything they can to knock it on the head. So you, you have to wonder what is the to me it's just social and commercial suicide what they're doing. And yet and yet they're, they're subsidizing industries like forestry that that are are creating further issues. You know, they say forestry employs all these people, but at what cost? You know mm. Look at what farming's doing, and 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 to be fair, um, a lot of farmers in the past have been slapped with things. But with all this um, enforcement that's that's been put up, everyone that I'm aware of, 
a, a vast, vast majority of farmers have sharpened their pencils uh, in, the, in the last 10 years, 20 years, 30 years. But, but uh, if every other industry did a, a tenth of what farmers had done, we would be so much better off. It, almost as if, and, and I'm not just saying it because, you know, I'm, I'm a farmer and I think we're being picked on. You've got to look at what New Zealand economy is based on. So why strangle the golden goose? I just It just seems mm. absolutely ridiculous to me. I haven't seen farming under this sort of pressure since probably the subsidies came off, what, in the early 80s, late 70s, early 80s. What are, you, what are the big differences that you see from then to now? Well, I think there was, there's no doubt that the subsidies coming off was a good thing because everything has to stand on its own two feet. And again, that you go back to the forestry. The forestry in, industry is getting subsidised. Well, why can't uh, if there's going to be subsidies? Why isn't it across the broad spectrum? And and surely uh, you would want to look after the goose that lays the most golden eggs. And farming is doing it. So um, I'm not saying we want specific handouts, but we certainly don't want concrete blocks put around our necks all the time. And most farmers have got that many concrete blocks around their necks. The number of Farmers that I know that have had land in their family for over a hundred years that are now saying, "I don't know that I want to hand uh, the farm or help my children get into farming because it is so difficult." Well, where does that leave our country? It's it's I mean, it's unbelievable, but that's that's how I see it. It's one of the. It's actually interesting that you say that because a lot of farms, like particularly key farms have been handed down through family trusts or from one, as you said, your fourth generation, so from one member to another. The difficulty with that, of course, is that obviously a lot of the equity is tied up in the in that land. And if it's so difficult to actually manage the farm, what hope then does anybody have if they're purchasing a farm to try as a going concern when interest rates are going up and and all the other extra costs and compliances that they have? I think a lot of people in town don't realise that these farms are really, you know, they're quite large businesses, some of them, and they are a business. I mean, this this isn't a lifestyle block where you pop out the back with a couple of alpacas and a milking goat and and life is twee. It is actually a serious business where you're actually having to create a profit and you're left to not only the whim of nature, but the whim of the economic conditions, which are often driven by whoever is in parliament at the time. Now, the wool industry has been trying to create and diversify to actually get the wool prices up, and they're just struggling every every which way that they look. And the cost now of taking fibre off the back of a sheep, particularly strong wool, uh, almost exceeds the price that they're getting farm gate or at auction. What are other examples like wool are you seeing? I mean, is it are you seeing that with meat? Are you seeing that with beef? Are you seeing that in other sectors? And are farmers getting frustrated with these changes? Well, I'll start with wool, Marie, because, I mean, wool has to be one of the most outstanding products that, that the world produces. And in a country like New Zealand, I mean, Jacinda was up there flapping around that, oh, you know, we're, we're leading the world in, in carbon, uh, what we're doing with carbon and da-da-da-da-da. The best sheep farmers in the world, what she should have been saying is, right, 
Any insulation that goes into any house in New Zealand has to be made from wool. It's a fantastic product. There's fantastic products out there for insulation. And yet we've got all this other rubbish that we're putting in as insulation. Surely there would be an opportunity to use that product that would sustain the farmers, that would sustain the government, that would sustain our country and lead by example a natural product um, and all these other products that, that require wool or whatever they do to, to make them. And here we are, you know, with this fantastic thing that we could use and we're not doing it. I mean, it's all these missed opportunities and it just seems, it just seems so wrong because um, we could be fueling what's keeping us afloat. In, in terms of the meat industry, as I said before, we're the most efficient producers of protein in the world. So if, if things are getting so difficult for farmers, a lot of it is simply economies of scale. With so many uh, of these beautiful farms going into forestry, it means that the infrastructure becomes uneconomic. If you've got a freezing works that handled 50 million lambs a year and suddenly half of their supply is diminished, well, obviously their running costs become extremely high in comparison to what they're producing. So it's all those sorts of things, the dynamics further down the line, all comes from an uneven playing field. And going back to what you were saying before about farm succession, there's another prime example. Because forestry has been subsidised, uh, someone coming in to to buy land to plant either production forestry or carbon because of the subsidies involved and the profits that they envisage that they're getting, which are virtually set in concrete to a certain extent, they can pay way more than any young farmer or farming families can, can pay. And yet it, it can be sustainable for the forestry because they're subsidised and yet the food producers are, are penalised for it. For listeners, what is the difference between carbon farming and production forestry? Yeah, well, well, essentially production forestry is a forest that's planted with the intention that it will be harvested and, and either used locally in New Zealand and further processed or, or sent as logs overseas. And then that land will be put back into forestry to be employing people and producing timber and sustaining an industry, assuming it's economic to do so. Um, carbon forestry is basically planting the trees and being able to get payments for the um, absorbing the carbon, a bit like what's happened after the cyclone Boulder in 1988. The forestry was all planted and they thought it was going to create the golden gooses. Now, well, as we've seen, it's created far more problems than it's solved. What happens to carbon forestry in 20, 30, 50, 100 years' time, no one really knows because we haven't been there. But essentially, if you're planting a pine tree which has a limited life, it's going to create all the problems we're seeing now with slash and what have you and more, but we don't know because it hasn't happened. But certainly the, the outlook based on what has happened so far is we're going to be left with huge bills for infrastructure, whether it be roading or bridges or what have you, or, or the possibility of fires, all these things. So, so just this is me putting on another hat. So, when they when they're planting these forests for carbon farming, they're planting pine trees. Why are they not using other sources, like putting things back into native, 
if if it's never going to be intended to be felled? Or is there some sort of rule that it has to be sort of mature within a certain amount of time to gobble up lots of carbon? So then they're going to what is the quickest growing tree that they can find? I mean, or is it because planting natives is expensive? Well, I mean, if they're subsidising it, why are they insisting on planting an introduced exotic as opposed to putting in natives? Everything that you've said, and, and I'm no expert on that, but what I'm hearing, and, and, and it's pretty obvious, I mean, a pine tree will virtually grow in a, in a brick. You know, pine trees mm. will grow anywhere. And whereas native trees, uh, it, it, they're a hell of a lot more expensive to establish and da-da-da. Um, so all, all of those things. But it's a, it's, it's a short term. You know, no one's looking, you know, 50, 100, 200, 500 years down the track. It's a short-term fix, uh, supposedly, and it's just short-sighted. Short, you know, exactly what it is, just short-sighted. Erosion's been happening forever. I was recently down in Fiordland, in at Martins Bay, and bush that's been there for you know hundreds, thousands of years, and huge, big slips are evident there. So I mean, that's just what happens. The whole concept of of the carbon thing—it's it's a bit like Bitcoin. I mean, it's it's it just seems based on some theory that you know this is going to do this and it's going to save the world. But from New Zealand's point of view, I think it was someone quoted the other day that we produce what, 0.4 of a percent of the world's carbons emissions or something. So, I mean, essentially, we're like taking a cup full of water out of the ocean. So, I mean, it's just bloody ridiculous at the expense of our whole people, our whole country when agriculture is our thing. And that's, it's, it's this ideological sort of thing that's been pumped up. The reality is that uh, we're going to starve to death before we ever die from getting swamped by the sea or from the hole in the ozone layer. So we actually have to stick to our knitting. Have you caught up with anything that's been going on in Europe? Like I know the Dutch farmers have now found their voices and there has been a movement there to attempt to essentially compulsory acquire farms to increase the urbanisation in the Netherlands. I mean, we don't have that same issue because we've got a lot more land than we do have people. But the pressure applied to governments, do you are you seeing pressure that they are really wanting to see farmers out of farming, that they don't they're not wanting farmers on the land? I mean, they they pay lip service to farmers and say, oh, no, you're important to us, we want you here. But saying something and doing something are two quite different things. What are some of the things that you're seeing that they do? that really is having a real detrimental effect to farming in the very, very short term and having farmers just shake their head and say, no, we're not going to do this anymore. We're out of here. I think the prime example is what I've been extremely vocal about, and that's Huiru and Martinui on the East Coast here, which would be two of the most pristine properties anywhere in the world in terms of food production with federated farmers here. And Gisborne's, I don't know what our population is, somewhere between 40 and 50,000, but there was a petition of over 9,000 that we presented to the government and explained the issues of those two iconic properties going in, into carbon farming because that's too far from the ports to be economic as a production forest. 12 families, or there's 12 houses on those properties, 12 families were lost their jobs uh, the school was closed down. It had the whole effect of unstabilising the whole community because if you don't have a school, the other stations have trouble getting staff. And we fought hammer, hammer and nail to retain those things. And the government, Kerry Allen and 
uh, Damien and Stuart Nash and Jacinda, they all said, you know, good food producing land shouldn't go under trees. Exactly what you're saying. They said, oh, no, it's bad. We don't want it to happen. And we, we gave this petition. Well, it, it probably went straight into the rubbish tin. It's almost as if they had this mandate, as you say, or this ideological thing that the whole East Coast should be in pine trees. I found it extremely frustrating because they, when you listen to them, you think, yep, they're talking good sense, they're on our side, they understand it, but then they do the complete opposite. So I, but looking at it from the outside as a layman, well, you know, are they our friends or our enemies? And and the way I see it, they're our enemies. And I just Mm. can't for the life of me think that they're doing it for anything other than their own self-promotion or ideolo- ideological ideas or whatever, but it's just crazy. It's, it's well, crazy. I just, I've just written down here Land Corp because, I mean, we all know that there is a certain number, quite a great number of farms that are government-owned and they are sort of run as state-owned into business enterprises, and we have several of them here in Hawke's Bay, and I know there are some up the coast. Um, so that, as you said, prime food producing land, you have this discussion, they say to you they don't want to take the land away from that. So they had every opportunity to purchase those farms themselves and then farm them with management as a state-run business, and yet they've chosen to to allow that to go into to trees. ESG is the new buzzword. Have you heard ESG rolling around in any of your uh, spheres of interest? It's, I find a lot of the stuff moves in cycles and fashions, particularly particularly with ide- ideology. And ESG stands for environment, uh, social and governance. It's essentially brownie points that you get for doing woke stuff, Yeah, to be quite blunt. And I just wonder, I mean, I look at this carbon farming and I just can't help but feeling that this is one of our government's way of earning itself ESG points for themselves in New Zealand in order to look good in the big boys club at the big boys table in Davos and those sorts of places when in reality they could actually save those farms, they could keep the food production there and not only benefit the greater nation for it, but also benefit themselves that benefit the purse of the country because these were profitable farms. It, it, it just blows my mind. It does make my mind boggle. Absolutely. I mean, you know, I don't know Jacinda personally, but I, I look at her on TV and the things that she's said and the policies that she's implemented, and I think she's obviously doing this for her own promotion with the United Nations and, you know, to be the rest of the world thinks she's absolutely fantastic. Well, I say fantastic. You want it, you have it. Because I don't think she cares about the people that are living up on the East Coast, the the infrastructure of our community. How I highlight this is, and one of the most iconic stations in the Gisborne region is Nick's Head Station, and that's owned by John Griffin, who is a a billionaire American uh, who's made his money in the futures market. Now, a lot of people were opposed to foreign ownership. But I look at the scenario of Nick's Head Station with the foreign-owned uh, forestry companies, particularly the carbon ones. Well, John Griffin out there, he has um, 16 full-time employees out there. He's done fantastic things with the restoration of very rare New Zealand species, Tuatara's birds. He's done all this predator fencing, planted tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of native trees, producing fantastic food. Um, he's worked in conjunction with the Tangata Whenua, um, uh, protected all the historical sites, doing an absolutely fantastic job. There's heaps of John Griffins in the world, and yet 
they are virtually totally cut off from being able to buy a property like Huiru and Martinui. And that's that's solely due to government policies and the stringent laws of the OIO. Now, to me, that's just absolute bullshit because they could get one of these wealthy people or a syndicate of wealthy people to buy a place like Huirua, get those 12 families uh, farming that beautiful land. I mean, Huirua, when Bob Pitaway was there, won the Hill Country Farmer of the Year. It's a bloody good farm and as good as any farm in the world. And these foreign owners, they could buy that land, preserve the land, nurture the land, nurture the people. They're people, John Griffin type people, they actually want to make a difference to the world. And yet our government is not allowing them to do it, but they're allowing these other outfits to come in and basically rape the people in the land. Now, you'd have to ask yourself, what sane person would say that that's a good idea, not, not allowing them to, to do it? It's, it's crazy. So are these carbon farms not locally owned? So they're foreign companies coming in to do carbon farming, but they're not, not allowing foreign ownership onto pastoral farms? To the extent of my knowledge, I think that's that's correct. Certainly, certainly the, the, the fact that they're not allowing foreign owners to come in and buy these same farms, that they are allowing them to plant carbon and trees. And they do it under, you know, it may be it, it may be supposedly local ownership, but but it's not. There's a way that they can do it that they don't actually have to look at pretty much what's going on. But essentially, uh, well, well Huirua, for instance, I think is has been bought by IKEA, which is not a New Zealand company. So yeah, case in point, it's absolutely ridiculous. And and also, uh, they can get the carbon credits in thirty years' time. When all those trees, we get another cyclone Gabriel, and and you know we'll certainly get more of them. And the bridges wipe out. Do you think IKEA is going to come and fix them? They're going to fix all the roads. You know, um, it's just it just seems absolutely unbelievably dumb. Mm. Well, it's almost environmental virtue signalling, isn't it? Well, it is. I mean, it's it's suicide. It's mm. you know why would they not do it? I, I I don't know. And particularly as again, as I say, you look at the next head scenario. It's fantastic. Everyone that drives past it, it's a model farm, and and these wealthy people they want to make a difference to the planet, and they are doing it by by nurturing the land and the people. Why would a government not encourage that? They can't take the land away. Everyone that works there is happy. They love being part of an environment where there is money to afford to do everything. Everything's spick and span. It's it's just a win-win all round. Mm. I just and and also you get properties like that 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 are remained in pastoral farming, as I said, because the economies of scale before. They mean that the freezing works can stay open. They mean that, you know, Gisborne, before pine trees came along, was, was totally reliant on agriculture and still largely is, despite what's happened with all the pine trees. But once the once the ass drops out of the wood business, which it will, because I mean most of it's going overseas to the Asian countries, sooner or later they'll say we don't need any more wood. Where are we going to be left then? And sure as eggs, it'll happen. Will we ever run out of a demand for food? Never. Ever will we run out of a demand for mm. food. You you touched before on people. Like one of the things that really having I mean, I remember traveling up to Huirua many, many years ago, and it's the most incredible place and drive and the and as you said it actually completely destroyed a community you know completely so a multinational comes in buys the farm for the carbon credits to, to improve the ESG score and in the process they offset an entire community out of there to do that so that's not very good for their score is it like they keep that one quiet in the press release 
where do people go? Because farming needs people. Right, so absolutely. You- it, it, I think the issue that you just raised there is, is very poignant because right next door to Huirua, we have Pukatora and the McNeil Farming Company. And, and they are a, a long-established uh, farming family on the East Coast. And, and they started off very small and through sticking to the basics and looking after the people, the land and the livestock, they have built up a huge business. And they're on lesser country than, than Hui Rua in terms of the terrain. It's harder country and what have you. But they have got a fantastic business. They're making good money. They're supporting the community. And they are going to find it increasingly hard to carry on with their business because the neighbouring property, should, which should be doing exactly the same thing and would be if these foreign owners were allowed to buy it, um, to keep it in farming, that the school would be retained there. It would create the community so families would like to go there. It would be a great place to bring up young kids because there's more people living there. There'd be more money spent on the roads, the, the infrastructure, all those sorts of things. As those properties go into trees, it's very easy for the for the government to say, oh, well, there's only one farm up there and they're not important, so we're going to not spend any money on the road. And basically, they're getting squeezed out, and yet they're, they're, they're really efficient at what they do. So it's almost as if the government, as you said before, actually trying to squeeze all of that mm. farming infrastructure out. Now, it, it appears that that's exactly what they're trying to do because if they weren't, they, they wouldn't have the policies that allow this to happen. Mm. And it and makes a, it a, so difficult. And particularly with hill country farming too, is unlike other forms of farming where their technology can make a tremendous difference, particularly more in horticulture and viticulture, you know, technology has been incredible in terms of harvest and being able to produce food more efficiently. Hill country farming is not, especially on high country, there's not a lot that technology can do other than help, I think, with an accounting and a planning perspective. It is physical work. It's It requires people. It requires infrastructure. Young ones coming through, those who are wanting to enter farming, are you seeing farmers worried about where the future of the workforce is? Is it is it here? Is it being sustained in New Zealand? Will it need to? Will they need to bring bring people in from offshore? What are your views on that? I'll, I'll come to that in a minute. I'll just I'll just raise one other point to what you alluded to just before in terms of the farming of hill country. Now, my argument is that there's such a swing, particularly by young people, with the word sustainability. Now, on Mangaroa Station. I only had 12 paddocks there. It had 12 paddocks 100 years ago. So our our footprint, whatever spectrum you like to put it on, was absolutely minimal. We didn't put a heap of fertiliser on. We farmed very traditionally, very basically, didn't put a heap of chemicals, fertiliser on that could get washed down. Because it, uh, the coast is a great environment, has pretty mild temperate climates, climates right through. We don't have to feed out supplementary feed. We don't have the problems of intensification, of bogging up of waterways and all those things. So from a sustainable point of view, with the way this government's talking about wanting to be, you know, world leaders, here we have a prime example of doing what we we do best. And it's been the same way. It's not affecting the environment to any great extent. In actual fact, it's a it's a template for sustainability. And a lot of these stations up there have won uh, environmental awards for exactly that. 
it actually makes a mockery that the government is getting rid of farms like that, getting all those people from rural areas to live in urban areas, which is going to put more pressure on the remaining land, and particularly the flat land, where they do have to pump more stuff in. It's just, it just seems to be all ass about face. Getting back to the the labour input, because farmers, the whole concept of farming is being put under so much pressure, there's a lot of a lot of the people, and, and mainly they're farming children, because they understand farming, they've been brought up with it. They're, they've been getting the message from their parents that, you know, farming's so tough, you're better to go and look at another occupation. So from that point of view, farming is getting very difficult because they're getting people um, from outside the spectrum that are, are coming in. And if you don't have the fundamental, I'm not saying you can't do it, but if, you, if you're if you not brought up in a farming family, understand the isolation, understand the, the hassles and things, it can be very difficult. And I think case in point again is uh, it's quite evident that with the recent um, Cyclone Gabriel and the inactivity of getting things in motion, and everyone seems to be getting about 10 million road cones to to make a track for the MPs to go and have a look at what's going on. We're in, while all that's happening, all the farmers have got on their tractors and they've opened up roadways and that, that they're practical people. Mm. You know, it's they're just people that work hard. They have good community um, spirits. They, they work together, whether you be brown, pink or white. You know, everyone's in the same. We fought in the wars together. We've played rugby together. We've worked together. You know, it's just that unity. And, and that's a rural thing. And it seems to be just getting lost. Hmm. I'm finding there are fashions, with particularly when it comes to farmers, farming and the ideology around governance and farming. And it was only a few years ago that it was all about the rivers. Remember, we can't swim in the rivers anymore. And next minute, farmers were portrayed again as the evildoers because cows were going into rivers and. These and I think this this turned up on the back end of the Havelock North uh, E. coli outbreak uh, that we had down here. Now it's sort of carbon farming and trees and slash. And I think the slash has been one thing that's been very very visual that is actually showing up the the unintended consequences of you know what they're trying to do. Are you what do you think could be next? I mean the this environmental agenda seems to be the new covid. Uh so we've had the rivers, they're saying that you can't you know you can't keep stock in rivers and they're trying to protect the rivers. They don't seem to be quite so interested in that now. And everything is now around climate change. What do you think is going to be the next thing that they're probably going to attempt to hit farmers with? It's can you see anything on the horizon or peek around the corner to the next great threat for farmers that has to be dealt with that farmers are at fault for or are not working out in or making worse in their view? I haven't really given that any thought, but I'll go back to your comment before about the waterways. And to be fair, you know, 30 years ago, probably a lot of us didn't take too much notice about waterways, but certainly in the last 30 years, there's very few farmers that haven't uh, fenced off certain waterways on their farm where it's feasible and practical to do so. There's very few farmers that haven't planted those waterways, um, various forms of conservation. You know, they're all proactive in making a difference. Farmers are intergenerational people and, and they want to, uh, a vast, vast majority, you know, well over 95% of farmers are actually there for the long haul to, to make it a better place for their children and for New Zealanders in general. So at the same time that farmers are doing this, 
you look at the, the train that they put in from Hamilton up to Auckland or the buses in Auckland because it was going to reduce the smog. But everyone in Auckland still seems to have three flash cars in their car shed. And you look at the bus going down the road and there's about three people on it. So the farmers are expected to do all this stuff all of the time. And yet the people in the cities that are putting all the smog up in the sky and, and doing all their things, they don't seem to have done anything. So it, all anyone wants is a level playing field. And and so there's huge inequalities now between ru rural and urban as to what they're expected to do. And and it just seems when when we're an agricultural-based um, economy, why is it, and as I keep referring to it, why are they sticking the noose around the golden goose? You know, everyone has to do their bit. And and from what I have seen and what I've understood of farmers, they they are more than doing their bit. And and not only because they have to, but because they want to. Can the same be said about urban people? Uh, from my observations, uh, they may want to, but are they doing it? No, because it's not that convenient. Yeah, I do think farmers yeah. being picked on. So, so where to next? I don't know. But uh, if things continue the way they are, well, you know, we're going to head for an economy like Sri Lanka or Greece. It's just, as I say, we just have to we have to nurture that golden goose. And I don't think we do. We're definitely not doing it properly. One of the ways that you express your frustration with this, of course, is through poetry which is what I alluded to right at the very beginning. Uh, have you got something prepared there that you th would like to share with us that sort of will encapsulate this conversation we've had today? Well, as you probably know, I'm, I'm a regular on Jamie Mackay's farming show and whatever's getting a bee in my bonnet, I tend to summarise in poetry. And, and I suppose the most recent one really was um, the poem I wrote for, or well, Jamie asked me to sum up uh, 2022 and I, and I, um, I, I wrote an, an quite a number of poems, about 12 or 15 through 2022. But the one I finished up with was the one that was my Christmas card to Jacinda. And it sort of encapsulates a bit of what we've been talking about. So the poem that you've got is one actually I remember from 2021, having listened to you uh, on the farming show. You delivered at the end of 2021. So tell us a little bit more about this, because I think it encapsulates a lot of the things that we've discussed this morning. Yeah, well, it was it was just before Jacinda called off her wedding, actually, and at the time she was arranging her wedding, and and funnily enough, she was having it at Nick's Head Station. Well, it seemed a bit ironic, really, because she probably should have been having it at Hui Rua Station that she was just in the throes of putting into carbon trees. So it's a bit like, do as I say, you know, not as I do, and I thought that was a bit rich, really. So it basically sums up what we've been talking about in terms of my real concern about the destruction of the community on the coast and the good land going into trees and the fact that Jacinda seemed to be totally endorsing it and turning a blind eye to the real problems, not that she couldn't see, but that she didn't want to see. And so this was this was my take on it, uh, Marie, so I'll fire away. And, and as I say, it's my, my Christmas poem for 2021. Dear Auntie Jacinda, three letters to you I've sent. I'm yet to receive a reply, so no, not sure just where they went. I gather you're coming to Gisborne, indeed, to tie the knot. Word on the street is that Clarkie boy, he must have lost the plot. A wedding is a wedding, and I wish you all the best. Other things I wish to raise, and I say them not in jest. Concerns I have are plenty, and Jamie says I'm one ahead of you in the top 10 yearly interviews that all his punters listen to. 
Not sure if that's a compliment, but I'll take it just in case. But I reckon I've got a reasonable grasp of what's happening around the place. People are unhappy saying enough, it is enough. I know it's nearly Christmas, but we're not all turkeys you can stuff. I've lived all 60 of my years as a resident of the coast. Clark, I'm sure, will back me up to say a place that's better than most. Every single resident here, I guarantee, is living the dream, epitomised by Ngāti Pro East Coast, Jose Gia and his team. We really are one people here, despite the differences plain to see. Honkies are the minority. Sammy Parks plus two or three. It doesn't even register. Not an iota of any fuss. It's the way we've always lived. You should model the country on us. Unity and mutual respect is what a partnership is all about. The coast is living proof it works. Of that, I have no doubt. We are so very different, but our basic rules, they are the same. The rules, they must be unified for all to play the game. Creating problems where they're not will destroy what's been achieved. Them and us is prehistoric, narrow-minded and ill-conceived. History must be history, even when it's far from nice. Lessons must be learnt from it. It's not for us to pay the price. Every sector knows the rules. They were laid out from the start. Every sector contributes something that makes us stand apart. But ultimately, we're all the same and must be treated together as such. You'd be extremely wise to learn from this. No one's asking much. We've all made many mistakes, creating discontent and strife. Mistakes are part of learning, a fundamental part of life. Throwing money at a problem without accountability and vision is not the maths of multiplication, it's the maths of vast division. So I suggest that whilst you're in our town, where you're coming to be weird, you take a serious listen from what the majority has been said. Marriage is uniting for a journey spent together. The parties require that mutual respect if unity is forever. And whilst we're on the wedding, I need to address the honeymoon. The coast is where you should spend it, as it will be really buggered soon. Thanks to carbon farming, you'll destroy life on the coast. I've lived up here all my life. I understand it more than most. Kui Rua and Matanui have significance to us all, iconic parcels of heritage to the East Coast one and all. Every single family has contributed and reaped reward. Losing these stations to carbon farming is something the country, the country can't afford. Listen to the people, unanimous on the ground, not a single solitary individual in support there can be found. A dozen families on these stations with roots throughout the coast. Twelve homes, for Christ's sake, is more than Megan Woods can boast. Mock and wire, we have no problem with the trees. 
Uiruwa for carbon, shutting the school down, if you please. Where the hell's the sense in this as you prepare your wedding vows, a mandate for your future? Best you spare a thought for hours. I'll happily drive your bridal car and guide you around the coast and show you real New Zealand, the envy I suggest of most. Life, we've got it sorted here on a limb out on our own. Best you allow the status quo and leave us well alone. This feeling is unanimous. It's imperative that you take heed. Carbon farming will destroy our region. It's bullshit based on greed. United like our rugby team, Papai the Mighty Blues, the recipe, they've got it right. We're even winners when we lose. My Christmas wish is a reflection, and I heard it in a song. Humble pie is marvellous stuff, never too late to right a wrong. Sir Apirananata, undoubtedly East Coast's greatest son, unity is paramount. Together we are one. And that was my Christmas card to Jacinda on Jamie's show in 2021. And and whilst a bit tongue-in-cheek, uh, really serious because, uh, as I said to you earlier, you know, I love this region. I love the people of it. It's a fantastic part of New Zealand and the world, and it is getting destroyed by inept policies and those in power turning a blind eye, and it really, really upsets me. Uh, I'll, just, I'll just have one last comment, if I may, Marie, and that is, I think, uh, farmers generally basically just sit back and uh, just accept things. But there is a real feeling amongst farmers, which I've never, ever seen in my life. I'm only 61, uh, that they realise that their whole lifestyle, their whole infrastructure, the whole community, the whole sense of being is being swept from under their feet. And we've always thought that those in power have our best interests at heart. But there is a real um, sense that we are being undermined, and which is fantastic to see that people who are generally quiet are not going to accept it. And we need everyone's backing because what is happening is just simply not right. Well, on that note, Graham, thank you so much for catching up. I think we're going to have to get some more poems in the future. I think people will really enjoy them. As you said, there is a serious note there. And hopefully, hopefully, with stations like this, we're able to get the word out there amongst people and get conversations started. So that's what it's all about. And with that, we can hopefully see some change. So thank you very much. This is my guest, Graham Williams from the East Coast. Hey, thank you, Graham. This has been another pleasure. Likewise. We'll catch you again. Cheers. Bye. You've been listening to Counterculture with Marie Busky on RCR, RCR. Reality, Reality Check Radio. Radio. Radio.